I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We are in our third week of Advent for this upcoming year B, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 through 11. So we want to put this into the context of Isaiah, and I think let's get have Alan get us started there. Well, as we've talked before, um, you know, it, it's interesting that the Bible just simply calls the whole book Isaiah, and a lot of people just assume, well, this must have been all from Isaiah the prophet who ministered in the late 7th century B.C. in Jerusalem. Um, the problem with that is when you actually read the book carefully, the contents point in a different direction. Chapters 1 through 39 do seem to come from the time of Isaiah at least and address the people of Israel with a warning of impending judgment. When you get to chapter 40, you have a, a drastic shift because all of a sudden the people are in exile and the message of the prophet is not one of warning of judgment, rather a promise of redemption. And um, uh, and then even later in the book, when you get to about chapter 55, you start reading and you start noticing some things that are even more different. It sounds like we're dealing with a people who have returned from exile, but things haven't quite worked out the way they expected it. And as well, they really haven't lived up to their end of, um, of you know, the, the commands of God. And so th- there are still problems with the people in terms of their practice of, of the way of righteousness, if you would say. So um, most, I would say most Old Testament scholars these days would recognize at least a first and a second Isaiah, and many would, re- would recognize also a third Isaiah. So we're dealing with that section of the book here that is, that is third Isaiah. And, um, where, Alan, just, just for reference, where does third Isaiah start? Uh, chapter 55, okay. Isaiah 55 okay. through 66. That's right. And um, one of the problems that, that if you read, if you just read Isaiah 55 through 66 as a whole, you, you begin to see very quickly that one of the problems that, was, that they were dealing with in that time was the people were still not living up to God's standards of justice. Um, in chapter 56, the shepherds of Israel have turned to their own way. Um, and so that so that the righteous perish, basically. Um, in chapter 58, you know, the people ask God, you know, we, we fast and you don't see, why is it? And the answer is that the fast I choose is to loose the bonds of injustice, to, to let the oppressed go free, um, and to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, you know, and so... so um, there was still a way in which they were not really fulfilling that. And, um, you know, in Isaiah 59, basically, the, the prophet says, you know, that basically justice is turned back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth stumbles in the public square. And, and so, um, you know, it's like they, they went through this 70-year exile and they came back and nothing has changed. <laughs> they're still, they, they don't get it. They're, they're still not it. practicing yeah. the righteousness and the mm-hmm. justice of God in their, in their daily affairs. And so as a result, in, in third Isaiah, the Lord promises that he himself will come to set things right. 
and he will bring the peace that is lacking. He will put an end to the violence and the oppression. After all said and done, basically in Third Isaiah, you have this idea that God himself is going to be the one who's going to set things right. You know, it's, it's pretty remarkable to think about because the people still aren't getting it, and here is God still not giving up on the people. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that is... That is an incredible message for for us. And I think, obviously, that takes us into this particular scripture yes, um, and this particular hope that this brings, as, as Third Isaiah is bringing it to this group of people. Um, I see two, and you can address this however you want, but I see two issues here. One is how this would have been heard when the time of third Isaiah, when those people heard it um, also versus how Christians obviously read it. And of course we use it as an Advent text. So I think let's have you drop back and say, okay, how did, how did the folks that might've heard it at the time of third Isaiah? Oh, I I think I'll start with the, with the second question first. I think I'll start with the, with how Christians read it, you know, (laughs) turning it up on side down. Yeah. Well, but I think it's important because, you know, we're all very familiar with the words of this passage. Right. I mean, there aren't True. too many people who haven't heard these words because, you know, it, it's it's at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Jesus, it's Jesus reading the text of Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth. And, um, you know, these words are words that have been used in recent times to really shape our understanding of who Jesus was and, and what his ministry was about. Um, I would argue, and others argue this, that not only that passage, but I would say that the first four Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are uh, those who mourn, blessed are the uh, meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so uh, I think there's an illusion. I would say there, there is an, a, an intended illusion on Jesus' part. To this passage also in the Beatitudes. So these concepts are, are concepts that make us think, oh, this is Jesus. You know, Isaiah is predicting what Jesus is going to do. And I would say, yeah, maybe Isaiah was, was, was looking forward to Christ, but in the first place, he wasn't. In the first place, uh, the, the prophet who is responsible for third Isaiah was looking to his own time. Exactly. And looking to yeah. the people of Israel in that day, post a post Babylonian exile, um, and um, so we're talking about sixth century BC, and we're talking about um, the, the a fragmented people who are who are floundering. You know, they're they're weak, they're oppressed, they're struggling, and Third Isaiah is addressing this passage to them mm-hmm. um, um, in that situation in which they found themselves. So mm-hmm. I I would say the first thing we need to see is that while we hear those resonances very loud and clearly we need to remember that this was a passage that was addressed to people in the sixth century bc first and foremost well that's being a good historian so let's take it down to these eyes of those folks yeah and i think i think the people who who of that day would have heard they would have heard resonances of like the poor the, the servant says, I, you know, I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor. And that concept, that word, anawim, is one that's found in the Hebrew prophets. And it refers typically to the righteous who are being oppressed at the hands of the wicked who are the rich and powerful. There, there is kind of a, a stereotypical image in the Hebrew Bible. Those who are rich and powerful are the wicked 
those who are righteous are the poor, the meek, those who are the least and the last of these. Basically, we talked about the least of these in Matthew 25. You know, that was the Anawim uh, of Isaiah 61. And so I think a lot of people would have identified with that, that idea. They would have identified, they would have heard this as good news that was meant for them. They would have seen themselves as those who are captive. They would have seen themselves as people who are oppressed and, and that this was meant as good news for them. I think they would have also heard a, a strong resonance with the year of the Lord's favor. Um, it's not a common theme in the Bible, and so I can't be sure how they would have heard that. But the year of the Lord's favor was a kind of a, a, um, a, another way of talking about the Jubilee year. And um, I don't know to what extent the concept of the Jubilee year was current in ancient Israel. Um, it was clearly something that was found Part in of the, the law. Leviticus, right? It's it, in the big, it Leviticus, was in the law. But you're right, to what extent by this time, <clears throat> so many centuries later, were people we we don't have see the thing is we don't have any historical evidence that the people of israel ever practiced the year of jubilee right. there's no evidence to that you see the thing about it is when we look at the when we look at the hebrew bible we can't assume that because the law of moses stands at the beginning that the people practiced it throughout their history in fact if you read the history of the people of israel you find a lot more clues that they they, they really weren't well and they weren't practicing the law of Moses. I think when we look at humanity, we can probably yeah. that that probably did yeah. happen. I mean, really, when you think about our selfish tendencies, does anyone really want to celebrate Jubilee year? I mean, right. that's like right? giving up all my stuff and giving it to someone else, and that is even though it may be a call, that's really, really hard it with our, our nature of wanting to place value in what we have and self-worth in it, what we have. It's one thing to talk about the elimination of structural poverty. It's another thing <laughs> to talk about what am I willing to give up to accomplish that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, But most sense. of the people I think that Third Isaiah was addressing here would have identified themselves as the poor, as the meek, as the as the oppressed, as the righteous who, you know, were struggling mm -hmm. and that this was good news for them. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think what we see in this is um, third Isaiah is kind of alluding to and combining some themes from the rest of Isaiah. So in, in second Isaiah, we have this, uh, these passages that are called the servant songs. And they're called that because they talk about the servant of the Lord who is going to proclaim and perhaps even enact God's redemption for the people. Now, we don't really know who the servant is. In some places, it seems like the servant might be second Isaiah. In some places, it seems, it's very clear that the servant is the people of Israel. And in other places, it's kind of ambiguous. So we don't really know. But if you look at the task of the servant of the Lord, I think there's something very important here because what you see is that the work of social justice is not peripheral to the redemptive work of God central. attached to the servant of the Lord. It is central. It is Absolutely. the work. It is the work. It is Absolutely. the work of yes. redemption. Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the ways we see that is, in fact, the word sedekah, which is righteousness, right. is often translated deliverance in, in, in the prophets, in the Psalms. 
Um, and so these, these concepts, justice and righteousness, these are concepts that are redemptive concepts. Uh, and I like what James Luther Mays, he, he's a wonderful Presbyterian Old Testament scholar. He said in his commentary on the Psalms that righteousness is the rightness that makes for life and shalom. Justice is found in decisions and actions according to righteousness. So justice isn't about law and order and crime and punishment. Justice is about enacting practices, enacting um, principles in society that make for this rightness, that makes for life and shalom. Or I've said it, you know, basically that um, justice and righteousness makes it possible for everyone to experience life as God intends it and to experience the shalom, the peace of God Mm -hmm. equally equally and and so you know again this idea of social justice is central then to the work of redemption as assigned to the servant of the lord and and we see that i think in our text for today as well because um you know all of the all of the phrases you know uh recovery of sight to the blind release to the captives comfort for those who mourn you know these phrases all address that but even at the end i love the last verse as the earth brings forth its, forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Great. So, so on, in the first place, you know, one of the big, real, huge allusions that that Third Isaiah has to the rest of the book of Isaiah is this theme of the servant of the Lord, and um, it, it comes out most clearly in Second Isaiah. But but Third Isaiah is bringing that into his time mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And this is, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but this is going to be partly of how uh, reformers will take this and say, and it will can apply to later historical periods. That this sure. is a continuing kind of thing. This isn't limited. I was trying to see if there was anything else that, that we particularly identified at the beginning here. Um, well, one of the things we could talk about is the the great omissions in oh, the Revised of, Common of Lectionary. Of course. Yeah, let me ask that. <laughs> now, if you if you are picking up your Revised Common Lectionary, you're going to notice that it says read 1 through 4 and then stop and then start over again from <laughs> 8 to 11. And, of course, I, I, I picked up Walter Brueggemann, and, of course, Walter Brueggemann does not take out those passages. <laughs> and I think Alan's going to agree as a as a as a as a as a biblical scholar that's probably how he would do it as well they'll cut those out oh, well honestly as a pastor <laughs> there are some times when i do leave them out because what what tends to happen is the revised common lectionary tends to leave out passages that raise problems that raise thorny questions and 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 so sometimes Unless they're parables, right? Well, right, right, <laughs> sorry, uh, right. Um, uh, so sometimes, as a pastor, I will leave those out if I'm not planning to address them in my sermon. But as a rule, I try to read the whole passage in its context. And so, you know, we have this, you know, this gap of they leave verses five through seven out, and and one of the things we're going to see is that. In Third Isaiah's vision of the restoration that God is going to bring to his people, uh, what that looks like is that their foreign enemies are going to be subjugated and serve them as, as manual laborers, and they're going to be free to serve as priests to the Lord. Well, okay, I mean, and, and I see how that would work for a people who had been oppressed, right? right? I mean, we still have, 
we're dealing as well with the language of the of the oppressed here. I right. mean, the people of Israel right. had been oppressed, and were still being oppressed by the enemies around them, and so they're looking for for relief from that. And the only way their minds in their minds that happens is if God destroys their enemies or subjugates their enemies. So one of the two, you got a destruction or you got b subjugation. So you got both of those in this passage, basically, mm-hmm. and we'll talk mm-hmm. about that. But um, I think that's why the Revised Common Lectionary left this out because it was something that, you know, when they put the Revised Common Lectionary together, it was something that offended their modern sensibilities. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I guess I get where they're coming from then, and it kind of does some of the easy work for us. Calvin doesn't leave it out. Well, and I wouldn't either because I think actually it it gives us a lesson to learn, and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, there's a lesson to be learned here, I I think. I think so as well. Uh, The other theme that 3rd Isaiah picks up from the rest of the book, and this is from 1st and 2nd Isaiah, is the theme of the day of the Lord. And the the theme of the day of the Lord is one that is just all over the place in the Hebrew prophets. And if you look at the theme of the day of the Lord, you see three ideas emerge. Number one, it's a time when the righteous remnant of Israel will be restored. All right, the the oppressed, righteous, Anawim, the poor, the the meek, the least of these, Mm -hmm. they're going to be restored and they're going to be set free from their oppression. Um, the those who have rebelled against God's ways and particularly among Israel are going to be judged and then finally God is going to avenge his oppressed people by destroying their enemies mm-hmm. this is a theme that you find in in the day of the Lord in the Hebrew prophets now I think the first two are consistent with our theology of a God of grace for all people right um, um, judgment is clearly a part of God's way with his people. And I would say judgment, not punishment. It's right. it's I agree. it's discipline I agree. that that, you know, as I've said before, judgment in the Bible is always about leading the wayward people of God back to God. Mm-hmm. But I think vengeance is another matter. Wholesale destruction of enemies is another matter. And and you can see how that would appeal to people who've been under the thumb of some of these people, right? Oh, right. There's a sense that the, they can, of, that's the only way they can see relief. Right. It's relief. Yeah. And especially as they've watched over and over and over and over. And I I think we understand that um, emotionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but uh, while that may have reassured Israel uh, that their enemies would would be um, would no longer be able to oppress them. I don't know that it really fits in even with the message of Isaiah you know, I mean, and, and even in even in First Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter two, the very beginning of the book, you have this image of of all the peoples streaming to the mountain of the house of the Lord, uh, and they will know me. And and you know, the idea is they will come to learn of God, uh, and and it's this wonderfully inclusive image mm-hmm. of the ultimate goal of God's redemption. You have that as well in in as we said last week in the servant songs in second Isaiah, it's too light a thing for me to send you only to restore my people. I'm going to send you as a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation can reach the ends of the earth. Right. Um, and so that doesn't fit too well with the idea that we're, that God's going to wipe some folks out. It's hard, <laughs> hard to wrap your brain around. Yeah. And yet, yet some people, I think we mentioned in a situation find bizarre comfort in this i mean I it's, it's an easy way to explain away evil yes it is and that um, evil will be destroyed that evil will be destroyed i would rather say evil will be redeemed uh, that's good i would right? rather say isn't evil that, will be redeemed that have a much 
and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that evil is not real it doesn't mean that that i'm going to hide my head in the sand from the from what is truly evil in our world but i think in in the way i read jesus the way i read um the bible as a whole rather than destroying evil god's purpose is to redeem evil i, I agree in the end i agree and i think that's a really good way to look at it and it's a really good way for us to to dig into concepts of e- of evil if we think yep. about what evil is but that's a that might be a harder way to understand it is it is because because how did jesus seek to redeem evil exactly he gave his life (laughs) exactly exactly uh you know so um but i i think we're we're dealing there with eyes by which we come to scripture and i think people don't i think it's easy to come to scripture just Mm -hmm. looking at hey god's going to destroy evil Mm -hmm. that's the end and that's that's a good thing (laughs) and it's easy so i'm going to be good and this this leads to all kinds of problems so i'm going to be good and i'm going to do good actions to prove and it's a good thing until in the scope of the overall view of things we wind up being the evil people because we are rich and hoarding our our wealth (laughs) exactly and it becomes it becomes a faith of actions as opposed to one of grace which is when you bring redeemed in now grace is back yes indeed back in the picture yes indeed Mm -hmm. um and i i want to point out here that when jesus quotes this passage in luke 4 he doesn't he stops, he stops at the year of the Lord, Lord's favor. He doesn't go on to say yeah. the day of vengeance of our God. I, and I think that was intentional on his part. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. So, so in, my, in my mind, God's redemption results in this kind of righteousness and justice and peace thriving for all people. As my favorite Reformed theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, is fond of pointing out, this vindication this this whole redemption applies both to the oppressed as well as the oppressors because that's the only way you can have true justice and righteousness You're right if both are redeemed and i mentioned that i think maybe before in this podcast but Eli wiesel talks about that in night yeah. how he's the oppressed and then in dawn how all of a sudden he's finding himself in a role of oppressor and mm-hmm. he really deals with that experience of that thinking this isn't this isn't an improvement right um right so precisely yeah so so you know this image is a beautiful one of restoration ruins restored people planted and flourishing like oak trees freedom uh justice and righteousness flourishing peace and yet with this image and this vision of third isaiah we're not all the way to jesus vision of social justice yet and this is where i think verses five through seven come in in that even in this beautiful passage the foreigners are doing the manual labor so that the people of israel can be priests of the lord and i don't think that fits very well with jesus vision of god's redemption so i think what we have to deal with here is third isaiah was a person of his time and he was speaking to his time and this was a message that was delivered for his time jesus comes along five six hundred years later and he has a little bit different take on it He's not willing to say, yeah, the foreigners are going to serve you. He's will, he wants to say, you're all brothers and sisters of the one God who is the father of, of all of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And I think, um, I think our reformers have some um, pieces to add about that. So. Good. Well, we'll look forward to that. Yeah. Thanks. Yep.
Well, that was quite a back and forth. We're back for round two, and uh, I'm going to ask Christy to put this context, put this passage uh, from Isaiah into the context of the Reformation for us. Sure. Now, again, reminding you that Reformers did not use these texts as Advent texts. So we are just going to look in general at these texts in terms of how this fit within a concept of Old Testament, and in particular, how it fit into the concept of prophecy. Um, and so there's an interesting um, process with 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 prophecy. It, they, they saw the, the, the prophets as telling not only of what is true in their time, but also as prophets that can move forward. And this is particularly too, true with Calvin. So while, for example, Calvin believes it's um, verse um, 61 verses 1 through 2 might be in reference to Christ, he also recognizes that it has um, a Hebrew tradition with it. So he kind of can balance the saying, look, this is scripture of the time, but it also can reflect forward into not only the time of Christ, but into his current time in the 16th century. So this really, again, reminds us of our kind of reform tradition of we continue to reform, yeah. we continue to move through history. So it's it's easy to kind of um, kind of be frustrated saying, Oh well, he just references Christ, but in his in his um, discussion of this passage, he actually says, Yeah, but it's both. So interesting. Um, that was uh, I mean, I would say he was ahead of his time on that. I I think Calvin was ahead of his time and um, in this kind of thought. Um I actually pulled out a a quotation from it. Um, So he says, This chapter ought, therefore, to be understood in such a sense that Christ, who is the head of the prophets, holds the chief place and alone makes all those revelations, but that Isaiah and the other prophets and the apostles contribute their services to Christ, and each performs his part in making known Christ's benefits. And thus we see that those things which Isaiah said would be accomplished by Christ have now actually been accomplished. So there's kind of this sense of they pull back to an earlier time, but they push through to this Mm -hmm. kind of providential reality of Christ. And then he goes on later to say how this actually can be applicable to the day. So again, it's, it's stylized. You have to put it into still his... His sure. limitations, but I do sure. think he's starting to see that this isn't just Christ, um, but that that Isaiah actually has a message to, at his time mm-hmm. for his his people. With with that in mind, I think you know as I think about prophecy and something else that that becomes very apparent in this is well, okay, how do you tell a real prophet from a false prophet? <laughs> and that becomes a big a big deal. And I think in a time too when you have a very very loud Roman Catholic Church claiming that they have the right faith, the true faith, the only faith, and then you have all these reformers saying, you strayed from the Church of Christ, so how do you tell? Um, well, the, the, right, the, the true prophets are the ones in the Bible, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yes. And those I'm are, joking. <laughs> for them, true prophets are the ones who are prophesying in accordance with the, the rule of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so that's always really important. Are they saying and are they are they consistent with Scripture? Are they preaching love? Are they preaching redemption? Are they preaching justice? Mm-hmm. And so this was a huge piece for them. And if they are not, then they are false prophets. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting in that concept, I got thinking about this a lot. So 
How do you identify who's a prophet, who's a false prophet? Who gets, does that put us into a place of judgment? Which um, I think is a real problem later on with with particularly the Reformed tradition, right? Oh, yeah. So we're really in, we, we really have this interesting balance between um, how we, not getting into a religion that's based on who doesn't belong and who does. And um, Calvin also is looking to see how people are responding in faith. And your response in faith is a huge part of whether or not you're a, a true a true prophet. And he's, he said, he doesn't want you to get so caught up with those folks, but he wants you to be saying, look, you want to follow somebody who not only preaches the word, but responds in the word. Lives it out. Lives it they out. practice and what so they that's preach. That's going to have a huge huge relationship to our social justice concepts that we're talking about uh, here. Uh, is this someone that is giving to the poor? Is this somebody that is taking care of widows and orphans? I mean, that's a huge part of what he sees as being, um, as being responsive and, and, and a good Christian. And as you probably know, um, in these early churches, these early reformed churches, which actually stripped all of the stained glass sure. windows and they're, they, they strip simplicity. Any, of the simplicity, the one thing they get to put on their walls are the Ten Commandments. I mean, so you can go and you can look, and there's these, the Ten Commandments are allowed to be posted. Again, a reminder of how one acts mm. as a true follower of Christ. Interesting emphasis on Old Testament, but the Old Testament coming from those who are walking right with God as God has instructed. So it's really, really interesting. Mm. So we talked a few weeks ago about how, how the reformers really weren't in the space to um, advocate for social justice as we understand it, but it sounds like they did have a role yes. for justice. I mean, I, I would be shocked. I mean, you know, as a person who studied the Hebrew Bible, you know, the concepts of justice and righteousness, these concepts that are brought out in this passage are all over. Absolutely. The Hebrew Bible. And so I'd be shocked if they didn't have a role for that. So, so tell me a little bit about how they practice that. Because we're lumping reformers together. So right. we need to separate them here a little bit. So your magisterial reformers are still very much caught up into a very hierarchical society. And that is still very much the reality. So they're going to they're going to see justice in terms of giving alms, in terms of making sure folks are cared for, um, making sure people are, are receiving appropriate healing. Obviously, we begin um, really uh, caring for people in, in kind of hospital-type ways. We do that a little bit earlier with the church, but it, it really continues at this time. Geneva becomes the model city for care. In fact, it's reported that no one goes hungry in Geneva because there is definitely a call to take care of the poor. Um, so it's kind of a... It, it, there is a sense of it there, but it's not modern in the sense of racial justice. Mm. It's not modern in the sense of equality, equality yeah. that we would think of. I, I say that, and then I want to put a little bit of a, a, a back up a little bit because some of the radicals are going to see equality. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to create these um um, uh, yeah, these utopian communities, communities these utopian yeah. communities where everybody is equal, where men and women are equal, where people of color, if they came in, where it'd be equal. So there'd be all of these uh, people that would be e equal in a way that um, might seem more modern to us in some ways. At least that, of course, most of us today still don't right. <laughs> live into that utopian kind of reality. Um, but they're functioning with churches that are 
are run by governments. And so they're run by magistrates and they're run in most cases by some type of, 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 of king or some type prince, of yeah. prince. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, I, one might be said, I, I have always, there's always in the Reformation a tension between um, what would be ideal, the ideal and what becomes reality with mm-hmm. how the church is going to function. I mean, I think we even see that in Paul, if we want to look sure. at Paul. And you see that in the Reformation. So you see someone like Ulrich Zwingli, who is very much, this is how the church should be. We should get rid of all the images. We should, um, you know, make sure that we don't have to follow any of the Roman Catholic traditions. We need to be preaching exclusively in the, um, in the pericopes in order, etc. That's Zwingli. But yet his reality was working with Zurich was, we're going to do reforms in accordance with what we can, a slow, processed, what we can make this work within the structure that's already here in Zurich. So it's a much slower process by which the beginning of the reforms take place and what's actually going to work. And we see that throughout this balance. And of course, the Reformation gets caught up into its political world as sure. well. Uh, so it it is an interesting balance. Um, well, I think I think any of us who are pastors these days understand, you know, the ideal and the real. What's 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 ideal and what's realistic, and and getting caught up in the political context. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I should bring up that. Um, our ladies, our lady reformers. Oh, nice! Yeah, with, please do with um, with prophecy as well, um, because it would be assumed. I think we assumed that women would be not looked at, but the re- in terms of being prophets in the Reformation area. But of course, why not? Because there's a huge piece with Calvin in this that the Holy Spirit is behind the prophecy that. The Holy Spirit has to be working in accordance with Scripture. You can't. Some of our sure. uh, some of our radicals are saying God's talking to me and I can do whatever I want. Right. That's never how Calvin sees it. But if a female voice ha- is is in accordance with pr- Scripture, that then they their prophecy is actually acceptable. So you see, they're a true prophet. They're true prophets. No. They're they're able to to talk and be in this conversation about. Um, how people should act and respond to um, to God. And to, there are people to still today who wouldn't accept that 400 absolutely, years later. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But we have several examples in the Protestant Reformation. Um, Aguila von Grumbach, again, we've had her before. Um, Ursula Wiebe, not sure if that's how they say her name, and um, um, Katharina Schutzel, who we've met before as well. So there's three voices. Um, I should give credit where credit's due here, by the way. I'm talking a lot about the work of Sajun Pak, um, a female uh, uh, acquaintance. She's a professor of Christian um, history at Duke, and she does a lot of work in this prophecy and has, has uncovered this work by these uh, female thinkers, but um, I want to point them out because I think we sometimes forget about them. Here they are, go girls. (laughs) Yes, well, it's interesting because they're balancing this call of God on their lives, but they're also balancing being wives and mothers Mm -hmm. um, because that's a huge call on their lives as we're getting rid of your monastic houses. So um, there there is, it's, it's, it's not like there's the kind of equality between the sexes that we think of today or we might 
talk about, there's still the sense of that, that women have a very important voice and important role. Um, um, and, and they do have something to say about scripture. Yeah. So these ladies are, 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 are early reformation voices that I think are really important for, um, women later on actually. Yeah, I imagine so. Definitely. So in the first segment, we talked a little bit about this concept of the day of vengeance of our God. And we've talked before that, that among the reformers, vengeance wasn't necessarily a, a primary characteristic of God because God's a God of grace. But how, did, how would they handle a statement like this, that, that, that there's a day of vengeance of our God coming? Well, of course, we have to look at Calvin, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, this is, um, you know, and he, he actually talks about this uh, quite clearly. And he, he says, look, here's two things. You have a day of good pleasure, as he, as he interprets it, and a day of vengeance. And according to Calvin, it's because there has to be um, that, that Christ is indeed the la- a just judge. Um, and um, if it, it kind of goes to that sense of, Look, he's going to take, it kind of goes to that sense of there's this elect, and the elect are the ones who are obviously the ones that are acting in Christ, they're moving, they're acting in response to grace, but then there's all those people that aren't elect, and this is where we kind of get to our double predestination that really gets overemphasized in Calvin's studies, I think, but here it is. Unfortunately, we don't like it, (laughs) (laughs) but it is there, but I think it, it, I think it responds to, look, um, if you're called in Christ and you're called to act in Christ and to then that's you can know you're saved but there's also a judge there and the judge will be damned I mean that's that's those who are judged will be condemned yeah they're going to be condemned and it's it is there so judgment is final in judgment's his mind. final I think what's interesting is I've read more Calvin is that he doesn't he doesn't spend as much time with this as we tend to think he does in modern mm. day. We, we really get hooked up on this. Um, and he spends much more time talking about God's grace um, and goodness with God. But it does kind of provide an explanation, I think, for why there is so much evil around. Um, and I guess, so then for Calvin too, perhaps this becomes his method of dealing with evil in the world is that there is a judge who will judge justly and those who yeah. are judged yeah. will be condemned. Yeah. And I think it explains, I mean, again, we're not modern people yet. We are still dealing with Calvin, even though he's a humanist and even though he's early modern, he still grew up in a church looking at the triptychs with Jesus, the judge. Mm -hmm. And that's just not gone here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you have to understand the context of the day. I, I I wonder why someone like Calvin, you may not have an answer for this, I don't know. I wonder where it came in that judgment had to be final, that if you were judged, you were condemned. I wonder where that came in. Did, I mean, did they? does Calvin talk about that, why Why he sees judgment as final? You know, I... <laughs> I think it's his, I think it ultimately becomes an explanation for the, for the elect versus those. And there's a lot of if you look if you read I know you've read the institutes as you read through the institutes you know there's there's a lot of discussion about those people who haven't who aren't part of the elect and what happens to them. I mean, is there hope for salvation? Well, really the only salvation is to those who are elect. And he tries to give confidence that indeed if, you know, 
if you are reading and responding to God and acting God, that you can have confidence you're saved. And, and modern folks like us tend to read that and think, oh my gosh, I'm not saved. And we tend to fall into a sense of, of, of fear and doubt. But Calvin's, I think Calvin's saying, look, live into this grace. You know, you're asking these questions, you're here. But there are pieces of Calvin that kind of say, gosh, what about these people who seem to be responding to God that aren't Christian? And is there, you know, and how does that fit into Calvin's picture? And um, he's not that clear about it, ultimately. Mm -hmm. I mean, he Mm -hmm. really, you feel like you're reading into the struggle a little bit. Um, But then he has other spaces then here where he can it seems to be you can judge or you can identify wicked with those who are not responding to God in grace. And, you know, the, the kind of concept of God can save whoever God wants, which would reflect sovereignty, is God is going to be consistent with the God's is. Yes. So God is going to save those who clearly responding. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, the problem there is then it leads us to jump to judgment. And sure. So what do we get? We get a, we get an early religion with fenced tables. You can't come take the sacrament because you have right. proven yourself not to be worthy. So I think that's a problem that maybe Calvin doesn't quite finish mm-hmm. before he dies that is built in. And I think it's taken these later reformers as we've moved into our modern period to kind of be able to sure. to, to take this into consideration. But the problem I think has left a bad taste for some modernists of Calvin. Um, and I'm hope, I, I think you just have to look at him as a, a, a guy of his day sure. who's pretty thorough. And well, and, and you know, the with. thought comes to mind, we, we sort of tend to impose onto the institutes that they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be a compendium of, of systematic dogma, but it's really, you know, the institutes of the Christian faith. And, and he's addressing Christians. He's right. not addressing, he's not writing this as a, as a philosophical systematic theology that's going to address every and any question. You know, he's, he, it's really a, almost a practical, almost a pastoral kind of document. If, if I'm, am I, am I off I, base there? I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, I think so he's, he's addressing Christians there. And I think that should help us at least frame, give it, give it in the right, put it in the right framework. He's not, he's not dealing with some of the bigger philosophical issues of, of, the, of our day. Right. He's dealing with, um, he's dealing with practical matters. Uh, his concern is to help the Christians of his day live the Christian life. Right. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I yeah. agree. Well, and, and, you know, um, hopefully that'll help people maybe understand that, that, you know, Calvin was a person of his day and, and to read him as such and not to impose on him sort of a well, modern criteria. And I think that's true, you know, of our reformers as a whole and why I am so, I mean, why I'm so crazy about this time period. I mean, these people are awakening to concepts of mm. God that have fallen asleep or have gone by the wayside or have gotten taken over by um, traditions that have been added in. Um, and the Roman, I don't want to, I don't want to hit the Roman Catholics hard because they too go through their own reforming process sure. saying, Hey, this is how we understand God coming to us. And the whole process gives us such a broader image of God working in, in through history. It's just, it's a time that's so important. And my frustration is we tend to come to our, our, 
our knowledge about the faith looking exclusively at the Bible and jumping to the to the modern times. This happens with a lot of our evangelical sure. traditions. And you can't leave out this history. No. Um, you can't leave out the history of the Roman Catholic Church any more than you can leave out the history of the no, Reformation. Yeah. Absolutely. And or then, the Enlightenment. And, of course, you know, that Roman Catholic medieval history. I've talked about it before. We in, in history, we call this a medieval church. This is indeed the church that all of us inherit. And then mm-hmm. it's these Reformation scholars in tune part with their times. I mean, it's the birth of modernity. It's the birth of the printing press. Um, it's the birth of vernacular languages. All these things are going on. It's, 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 it's a rebirth of, of humanity in many, many ways. And so now how does scripture and how does the mm-hmm. faith reflect that time and move into it. It's just you know, I've had a I've had a printed Bible as long as I've been alive and I'm yeah. you know I'm pushing 60 and you know I can't even imagine a life without books of any kind. Exactly. And and I mean that happened in that era and and boy what a that was just a huge change. I mean just being right. able to read the Bible for yourself. Right. So think about this 1455 is the first printing of the Bible of Gutenberg's Bible. Of course, friends, he the first the thing printed is indeed the Bible, <laughs> right? And it's the Vulgate. And so, um, and think about that. Fifteen seventeen is when Luther's going to post his theses. Right. So this is surprise, very surprise. Long, yeah, right? it's not very long that we've had printing. It's what sixty years that people have been able to buy printed books. But by the time we get, you know, to Luther and our ability to print some some pamphlets, right. We can get them out to pamphlets a lot of people. Yeah. And. Um, we're talking about a dissemination that's a lot faster. And you know how excited you would be yeah. and how much you would try to figure out how to read that darn language. Um, yeah. I mean, this is just such a cool time. So all that's contextual because I think it really talks about how our faith has has informed us at every historical age. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge, huge time and a huge time in in our well, and I think that's part of our part of our whole reason for our discussion today is to recognize that 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 for our faith to be authentic, we have to put it in its historical context, and that implies both the third Isaiah, it applies to Jesus, exactly. it applies to the to our context as well as Calvin's context as well as other Absolutely. church contexts. Yes. Yeah. yes, that's awesome. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hey, we are back, and we are going to talk a little bit about using this this text as an Advent text. And I think our first question, why use Isaiah for your Advent sermons? Well, um, I think there are a lot of good reasons for that. I think the first one is, if you want to preach the good news, I don't know of a better text than this. I mean, I mean yeah, we talked about how Third Isaiah's vision isn't quite quite where Jesus is, but it's still pretty amazing stuff. I mean, you know, um, um, binding up the brokenhearted, uh, annoyed, you know, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the eyes of those who are blind, you know, um, um, giving joy and comfort to those who are mourn, the oil of joy for for those who are mourning. Uh, you know, restoring the desolations and the ruins, um, and the idea of this, um, uh, like a like a beautiful garden, God is going to cause His 
righteousness and his praise to spring forth. You know, that's a beautiful image. Well, I was so caught up with the imagery when I read this and I kept in my mind was these true images of what God's kingdom look should look like. And, and, and here they are. And Mm -hmm. Gar, I mean, in this translation, garland instead of this, 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 this triple kind of uh, parallelism, a garden instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of a faint spirit or, or spirit of despair, oaks of righteousness. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. It's a beautiful I mean, image. So many great images that um, I think can stick in people's heads um, and, and provide us with that image of hope. Like you were talking about uh, so often, I and mean, we, in Advent, compete against Christmas already here. I think we talked about that last week. Yeah. And so to have people have images of hope and waiting, um, what could be better than this? Well, and I guarantee you, for all of our rushing to Christmas and all of what I would consider to be our superficial gaiety that we put on at at the holiday season, listening to the music, watching the movies, decorating the house, baking the cookies, doing all the things we do. I would guarantee you that most of the people sitting in the pews of our churches or, or, or tuning in to our live streams or our Zoom worship are struggling with the reality of life in some way. Because in some way or another, they're experiencing the injustice. They either are experiencing or have experienced the injustice of this life. And it's just, it's a reality that we live in. And, and to ignore that and just put on sort of this um, facade of, oh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, that's, you know. that's good. That's good, Alan. Um, I mean, it's just, um, uh, yeah. it's, it doesn't quite cut it right. in terms of really getting at the heart of what's gnawing at people's souls. Well, and particularly this year. I mean, I think that's true every year, but this year, I don't know a single person who has not been touched by natural disaster or pandemic or political unrest. I mean, it is just gnawing away at our souls. And then to sit here and listen to or this. the economic, the economic well, oh, downturn, right? I didn't even right? mention ac- yeah. economic downturn. Yeah. And you put them all together, and it has affected us all. It has affected us all. And then to hear these words, um, and uh, it—I don't know—I came into our discussion today just filled with joy. I think because I was reading these images of hope. Um, well, and one of the things I love about Advent is that it reminds us of the way in which Jesus not only proclaimed but also enacted the good news of the gospel but it also points us forward it it reminds us i think that god's not finished yet this is still god's agenda god's agenda is still to create to set everything right God's agenda is still to, to make righteousness spring up from the ground so much so that all people can thrive together in the peace and in the life and in the, you know, in the, in the joy that he intends for us all. Right. And that's, that's the ultimate, that's the end game for good, for God. That's, that's the ultimate goal for God is, is that all people will experience that. And so, you know, we, we, we can see, we can, we can, if we, if we, if we use Isaiah 61, 
it gives us a means for appreciating where Jesus was coming from, but it also helps us to see the broader picture too. Yes. As we said before, that the the social justice imagery in the Bible is not mm-hmm. just peripheral to God's redemptive purpose. It is central it to is it. Central, and it's right here. Yeah, and so and so it gives us it gives us sort of. I guess the confidence to be able to declare that message confidently and and without hesitating that look friends this is what God has been about from the very beginning from the very beginning and I love this too it talks about God's constancy and and, And that's the word that's the word in Hebrew emet which is translated truth or faithfulness yeah you know and the idea is that 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 you know not only is god a god who's going to set things right but he does this because this is what is true to his character and he's always going to be true to his character always going to be true and it's so we get rid of that old that concept that's out there right now that there's an old testament god and a new testament god this is god that has god created us god that created us in god's image Mm -hmm. as an act of love out of an act of love that has given us freedom to act and it loves us regardless of our sins Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that yeah promises here like you said to send to become look you didn't do it this time i'm gonna i'm gonna sense i'm going to come and i'm going to set things right i'm gonna set it right yeah i'm gonna you need more help than what you right? can provide exactly. for yourself. Exactly. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 So it is an exciting passage, and and for me, I I I mean, I think it's 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 easy to skip to Jesus. You know, always. You know, whether it's whether it's a typical Sunday or whether it's Advent. You know, we want to just skip to Jesus, but we can't fully. Um, I don't think we can fully understand, nor can we fully proclaim the message and the and the meaning of the life of Jesus without having this passages like this in, in undergirding our understanding of Jesus. So it gives us, I think, a, a, a way to get even more excited about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think especially if we're going to head to Mark this year, and I think this is a really good way to get you into Mark as well. Well, yeah. of course, because because this gives you sort of a basis for understanding Absolutely. Jesus' ministry as exactly. it's presented in Mark's gospel. Abs- my thoughts exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Other thoughts? You know, life feels oppressive right now. It does now. feel oppressive. It, it does. does. And, and so, you know, I think sometimes when we get to that point, we can tend to glaze over when the preacher starts preaching. What difference is this going to make in my life this year? Yeah. And so perhaps that's the thing we all need to be thinking about as we try to preach this passage this year. Um, how can we really bring this home for people who are struggling? Maybe some folks are worried about losing their homes because yeah. of yeah. because of losing jobs. Maybe some folks are, are, are grieving over the loss of loved ones. Uh, maybe other folks are, are just tired and frustrated that, that well, just the color of yeah, their skin yeah. is something that is three strikes against them, you know, in every facet of life. You know, sorry, I'm interrupting, but that's I, okay. I think, you know, when I think, when I, when I talk with people like, why has God let this happen? Is God even in present with us? We've forgotten that God has walked through uh, this with us before and that God has sent Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But we forget that because we get so caught up in looking behind 
And when we can step into that space and, and say, wait a minute, throughout history, as tough as this seems, um, God has been there. Mm-hmm. God's been through even worse with the people. Yes. And never gives up on us. And and I think what you realize that we are part of this huge reality of historical mm-hmm. um, beings that we that we are present in time. And frankly, we get so caught up with with why me instead of saying how mm-hmm. how is God working with in me within this timeline. I think this could really energize us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. I like that reference to the to the larger people of God. Because when we think about me, myself, and I, you know, it's easy for us to feel sorry for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But um, if we can look at it from the larger people of God, it's like you said, you know, the people strayed, God brought them back. The people strayed more, God brought them back. The people kept straying and kept straying and kept straying, so they went to exile to try to learn their lesson, and God brought them back. And they didn't learn their lesson, and God says, okay, I'm going to come and do this myself. (laughs) And so, friends, it's not the end of the world. How many people tell you that? It's the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. I've had people ask me. Yeah. What do you think about the prophecies? (laughs) Is this it? (laughs) Well, I think about the prophecies. I think about messages like this. This This is the this is prophecy. This This is is the the heart of prophecy. It's not about predicting the end of the world. It's about it's about the promise of God's redemption. That's that's what prophecy is about. Exactly. And I think I think we actually have through this text really maybe the opportunity of our lifetimes instead of seeing this as the hopeless year that we can't bring anything good as that God's put the the verse in our hands yep. to bring yep. what people need to hear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Well, I don't think I can improve on that. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, hope see you all next week, I hope. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Christy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.